last episode, I said that the redefinition of marriage to allow same-sex unions had created the ideological space in which transgenderism could flourish. This week, I want to broaden that theme and examine how cold, hard logic drives and expands the social liberal agenda, whatever the original intentions or expectations of the politicians and activists pushing it. In recent weeks, two pieces of news have exemplified what I'm talking about. The first came in June this year with the British Supreme Court's decision that heterosexual couples were entitled to enter into civil partnerships just as homosexual couples have been since 2004 with the passing of the Civil Partnership Act. Theresa May has pledged to bring in new legislation enacting the court's decision. The case, which was brought by Rebecca Steinfeld and Charles Caden and backed by a political campaign group calling itself Equal Civil Partnerships, was launched in 2014, at the same time as the first same-sex marriages took place in the UK. This was no coincidence. The 2013 legislation that brought in same-sex marriages purported to treat homosexual and heterosexual unions equally. In actual fact, as I attempted to show in a previous video, this is not strictly possible, given the fundamentally different purpose and rationale behind the two forms of union. Nevertheless, that is the legal fiction and political narrative that we are expected to swallow. Seeing this legal equality between same-sex and normative marriages, campaigners, unsurprisingly, called for consistency on the part of the government and demanded that civil partnerships be extended as a right to all couples, both gay and heterosexual. What has been noteworthy about this case is that it has been resisted tooth and claw by the British government, all the way through the High Court, then the Court of Appeal, and finally the Supreme Court. Criticism has been levelled at the authorities for wasting taxpayers' money on propping up what critics regarded as an unjust situation that discriminates against heterosexual couples. What has been obvious for a long time is that the Equal Civil Partnerships campaign group has logic on their side. And under the English legal system, which is based on precedent and therefore on consistency, an inconsistent approach, such as the government's, will eventually be struck down by the courts. This is exactly what has happened. What the Equal Civil Partnerships lobby group has not had on their side, however, is a good product. Their chairman, Martin Lote, claimed, after the Supreme Court verdict, that legalising heterosexual civil partnerships would, quote, promote stable families, unquote. This is directly contradicted by the evidence. According to the Office for National Statistics, in 2016, the dissolution rate for civil partnerships was 29.7 per 1,000 civil partnerships compared with the divorce rate for married couples of 8.9 per 1,000 married couples. In other words, compared to marriage, civil partnerships are over three times more likely to split up. Put another way, the insistence by some heterosexual couples of rejecting marriage and instead entering a civil partnership makes families more unstable. Of course, this outcome is completely different from the original intentions behind the 2004 Civil Partnerships legislation. That particular act had a very different aim in mind that had nothing to do with so-called justice for heterosexual couples who don't wish to get married but who wish to gain the same advantages nevertheless. The 2004 Civil Partnership Act passed by the Blair government was a substitute for same-sex marriage. It gave homosexual couples virtually the same legal advantages as married couples at a time when it was judged that calling it marriage would have been politically unpopular. 
when same-sex marriages were legalised a decade later by the coalition government, civil partnerships no longer made any logical sense. It was marriage that LGBT activists had hankered after, not marriage in all but name. Not for them referring to their significant others merely as partners, as opposite-sex married couples had increasingly been forced to do in their interactions with state departments and government-funded organisations. No, there is a certain sort of gay man who wishes to call his boyfriend his husband in order to make a point. This expectation of the decline in civil partnerships as a corollary of legalising same-sex marriage has largely been borne out. Since the same-sex marriage legislation, the annual formation of new gay civil partnerships has dropped by 85% from its peak. So the push for heterosexual civil partnerships has come as a surprise for some, and certainly was regarded as an inconvenient development by the government until the Supreme Court's decision settled the matter. However, given that our political and social discourse in Britain is underpinned by the ideology of equality and by a legal system that aims always at achieving consistency, it was inevitable that, sooner or later, we would see heterosexual civil partnerships. There is a cold, hard logic to the process that has unfolded, but it is a logic that is undeniable. It represents a further unintended consequence of the legalisation of same-sex marriage by politicians who do not wish to think through carefully the longer-term consequences of appealing to fashionable opinion for short-term political advantage. The second news story that exemplifies this irresistible logic behind socially liberal changes happened a couple of weeks ago, and at one level is highly amusing. Dutchman Emil Rattelband appeared on the BBC's Victoria Derbyshire show to explain just what he wants to do. 10.32, let's talk now to the Dutchman, who's trying to legally change his age from 69 to 49, yeah. with the aim of... Well, you can tell us what the aim is in a moment, actually. Emil Rattleband, a motivational speaker, attempting to move his birthday from the 11th of March, 1949, to the 11th of March, 1969. You can change your name. You can change your gender. You, why not your age, he says. Nowhere are you so discriminated against as with your age. That's what he said to a Dutch newspaper. There are a number of amusing aspects to this story, all heightened by the unflappable character of Emil Rattleband himself. First, there is the obvious absurdity of seeking to change, in the eyes of the law, an historic event that cannot be changed, namely his date of birth. Second, his adoption of the exact same language of feelings as the most important factor as that employed by the transgender lobby. Thirdly, the visible annoyance of the transgender activist in this interview as he realises that his own arguments are being used against him. When it comes to transgender, it's not just an identity. It is a medical, medical condition that has been understood for 50 it's the same. years. It's the same. It's the same. My doctor says I have a biological age no, 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 for no, no, 42. No, no. no I, respect, I respect your meaning, but then you have to tell, also listen to my meaning. And so that's a beautiful thing about the, when we live now in 2018, that, uh, that you can say whatever I like, I can say whatever I like, I can do whatever I like. Yeah, you, so it's my feeling, it's your feeling. When you are a man, you have the feeling, I want to be a woman, or I am a woman. It's okay. And I have the feeling, I want to be younger. It's my feeling. I respect you, you respect me. Okay, but is anyone with any common sense really surprised that someone now wants to legally change his age in light of the legal right to change your sex, contrary to the scientific evidence? 
The British government's proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act, for example, would enable someone to change their sex without any medical evidence whatsoever. One possible legal consequence of the government's proposals would be changing your birth certificate to show your new gender, a palpable falsification of the historical record that parallels Emil Rattelvan's desire to change the legal record of his date of birth. Whatever else these changes may be, they are logically consistent. Age, like gender, is legally classified in Britain as a protected characteristic. Why, logically, and in all justice, should you offer a right to one protected characteristic while denying it to another? I understand that it's not what the government and many politicians wanted, but the Pandora's box has already been opened, and the forces liberated will roll on to their logical conclusions, affecting us all negatively in some way. However much we may chuckle at Emil Rattelband's desire to change his age, such a move would result in bad outcomes. This applies more widely to many of the social liberal changes that we have witnessed in recent years. When you tamper with the basic building blocks of society, such as the family, marriage and gender, it is like throwing a rock into the proverbial lake, with waves and ripples spreading far farther than you could have originally anticipated. But they can fairly be described as known unknowns. We may not be able to predict with precision all the bad unintended consequences that flow from changes brought about by a social liberal agenda, but that there will be consequences, and many will be for the worse, is not in doubt. For it is part of the wisdom offered by social conservatism that messing with society's basic DNA will end badly.